You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Good morning. Welcome. If you're our guest this morning, I want to welcome you. My name is Pastor Rush. We're glad that you're here. We look forward to getting to know you after the service or at another time. As the kids are making their way to their classes, let me invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the sermon text for this morning, which is Revelation chapter 14, verses 14 through 20. Revelation chapter 14, verses 14 through 20. We have yet another difficult text in front of us this morning, but we know that God will give us grace to understand and to apply it to our lives. That is certainly our hope. If you are visiting for the first time with us, we've been working our way through the book of Revelation. It'll take us a little over a year, and currently we're obviously uh, somewhere in the middle there, Revelation 14. This morning, considering together the great world harvest that God has declared will come at the end of time. Again, these are, these are deep and weighty things we have been considering, and the Lord has been giving our church lots of good days in so many different ways. He has been blessing us. We're looking forward to this service in particular because at the end, toward the end, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper yet again as we do every month. And then we also have the joy of presenting new members this morning at the very end of our service. And so we look forward to that and we want to set our hearts upon the truths that are at the center of our celebration of the Lord's Supper, which is the good news of Jesus Christ and everything that he has done for us to redeem us and to satisfy us forevermore. And that will come to a kind of conclusion with the great world harvest in the end. There is a truth that I've been thinking about recently that has brought me a lot of comfort. It's an interesting truth that I haven't thought a lot about, but I have been trying to appreciate it more, and it is the fact that God is better than all of us. God is better in every way than all of us. Now, that's an interesting truth to say is comforting to us because very seldom do you think that way about anyone else. There are very few people in your life or mine that are better than us, and that actually brings us comfort because our hearts are bent by sin. When someone's better than us, we tend not to be comforted by them. We we are kind of in conflict with them. We may become jealous of them, but when it comes to the Lord of the universe... The very fact that he is better than us is a comfort to us because we know that he can be trusted and we know in the gospel that he has promised his grace and mercy toward us and he will be better to us in every way than anyone else and therefore we can actually rest secure in him. One of the ways that I want uh, for you to see that God is better than us this morning is that he is better than us among many ways, because he tells the end from the beginning. That's a clear way that he is better than you and I. We cannot do that. Now, we can do the opposite, and he can too. You can tell the beginning from the end. You and I can look back at things that have happened in the past, and depending on how good our memory is, we can think about those and and recall the mercies or the events of the past. But none of us can tell the end from the beginning. But he can, and he does. And that's what's been happening throughout the book of Revelation as we've been walking verse by verse through it. In fact, that's what happens all throughout the word of God. From the very beginning, he is declaring what will happen next. 
He's routinely preparing his people for a future day of future grace and his future glory and all of the things, all of the purposes that he intends to bring about. Think about even from the very beginning in Genesis, he told after the fall that that the seed of the woman would one day rise up and become the redeemer of the world. That's the first gospel or the the proto-evangelium, the first gospel. You think about from there, he declared about his covenant with Abraham, that he was going to make him the father of a great nation in the future. And this covenant was going to find its fulfillment in Jesus as the seed brings that promise down through the ages. It's an incredible ability to tell the end from the beginning. Not only that, but as we work our way through scripture, he declares about Jesus Christ what he would come and do, that he would come and live a perfect life in the place of sinners like us, that he would die on the cross in our place for our sin, and that he would rise from the dead. And as time passes, sure enough, his purposes in the world bring that to fruition, and we see it happening in history. And then continuing on, especially in the book of Revelation, he's looking forward with us through this vision given to John about what will come in the future. And this morning, we set our hearts upon the coming great world harvest, the final redemption, the final judgment. We want these truths about God, that he is better than us, that he tells the end from the beginning, and everything that he promises to us and declares to us in scripture to be a comfort to us today. We've repeated that over and over again as we've walked through the book of Revelation, that our focus has not been to unravel these these deep and dark mysteries and to speculate about what all of the symbolism and timing and names and numbers could mean, though we get into some of that, but more than anything, we want to do what the book of Revelation does, and that is exalt Jesus Christ as the king of the universe, and then to delight with joy and gladness in the plans that he has set forth, those to redeem us and also those to bring judgment upon the world. That makes the book of Revelation quite difficult, but God has been gracious, and he's gracious again this morning as we look at this next text in our study. I want to show you three truths about this coming great world harvest and see how they may give us comfort and hope today and enable us to live for his glory with joy tomorrow and the next day, and the next day, looking forward to what he has planned in the future. As we consider this future great world harvest, here's the first truth. The first truth to remember about what is coming, it's the same truth that we have been remembering from the beginning of the Bible to the very end, from the beginning of the gospel message before the foundation of the world to the very end, from the beginning of Revelation to the end, and that is that the Lord himself will harvest the world. We're reminded over and over again that Jesus Christ is the one who is in control. And he is unthwartable. He is unparalleled. He's unstoppable. No one counsels him. No one tells him what he should know. He already knows exactly what to do, and he has the power to do it. The Lord himself will harvest the world. Notice this in verse 14, that it is Jesus himself who is the harvester. John says, next in his vision, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man. This white cloud is 
this person, this person like a son of man, it is his chariot. Now, this cloud, like other things in the book of Revelation, are not, is not taken literally, but it is not a, a meteorological event, but it is a spiritual reality, this cloud representing the chariot of Jesus. It's reminding us of other places in the Bible when this cloud shows up. It's the same cloud that filled the temple in the Old Testament. It's the same cloud of glory that enveloped Christ at his transfiguration, declaring his his true reality in that moment. It is the Shekinah cloud of God's ultimate glory. And what we're seeing here as Jesus comes in this miraculous, magnificent way onto the scene, a far different appearing than the one that we first saw when he came into our world as the redeemer of sinners like us. You remember the way that he came into the world, his first appearing was an appearing of incredible humility. He came into the world as a baby. You cannot get any more humble than that. Then he grew up as a carpenter. He grew up in poverty. He didn't have anything. The Bible is clear that there was nothing attractive about him. He was not someone that everybody looked at or noticed. In fact, if you had lived at that time, he could have walked by you on the sidewalk and you never would have thought anything of him. If you thought anything, you might have thought, well, that person is average. He's unattractive. But now look at the way he is coming again at this final great harvest of the world, the final redemption, the final judgment. He is not coming as a baby. He is not coming meek and mild. He is not coming without riches. He is not coming without glory. He is coming with all of that. He is coming in his own glory, riding a cloud. Now, John refers to him in this way. It's very interesting. He says, one like a son of man. This is the same description that John uses in Revelation chapter one, using this favorite title of Jesus. As we read throughout the gospels, we notice that this term, son of man, is used 80 times. 79 of them are used by Jesus himself about himself. It is his favorite title. Why then would John say, I saw one like a son of man? It's obvious who he's speaking to. I think with other commentators, what's happening is John is putting on display his awe in the moment. He's recognizing who this is, but he can't quite put words to it. It's something beyond a scene that can simply be described. So he says, I saw one like a son of man. Notice that he comes wearing a golden crown on his head. There are two words that can be used for crown in the Bible. One is diadema. A diadema is the crown of a king. You might think of a diadem. Sometimes we think of a jewel and a crown of someone who's royal. That's one word that can be used. But there's another word called stephanos. And it's the word for a victor's crown. Now we know that Jesus wears both. But in this scene, he is wearing the Stephanos. He's not just coming as a king. He doesn't just have jewels in his crown putting on display his glory as king for a moment. He is coming. He is coming more particularly as the victor wearing the victor's crown. This might be a little bit of the difference between what we see in an Olympic medal and a military medal, a medal for bravery and honor. Both are incredible accomplishments, but they are different. 
One is an accomplishment of a great feat. One is accomplishment of a great victory. Jesus is wearing here the Stephanos crown, the victor's crown. But not only that, notice what John says about him, that he has a sharp sickle in his hand. A sickle is a tool that would be used to to harvest perhaps wheat in the field, a large blade. You see something like that on the screen. Imagine this image of Jesus Christ. We saw just earlier in Revelation that Jesus was the Lamb of God standing exalted on Mount Zion over his enemies. But now you see him coming on a cloud with incredible glory and a sickle in his hand with a crown on his head as the victor. John knows exactly what the sickle is for. And you can only imagine as John is receiving this miraculous revelation, this vision, that he is seeing what's unfolding and it becomes a concern to him. What is he going to do with this sickle? Well, we're going to get there in a moment, but first, don't miss this truth. The most important truth at this very moment is to remember that all that happens in the future happens under the ultimate sovereignty and control of the eternal Son of God, the Lord himself. He is the one who will harvest the world and no other. That should be a truth that gives us comfort as those who have come into him by grace. We have come in to know him. We've come under his protection. He's become our shepherd. He's become our victor. He's become our king. We look at him and we recognize his crown of kingship. We recognize here his crown of victory. And we rejoice in that. Because his sickle, yes, is coming for us. But as we'll see in a moment, it is coming to redeem us and gather us. Therefore, let me encourage you to make use of this text first by looking forward, actually looking forward, taking time as a kind of spiritual discipline in the coming days and weeks of your life to look forward to your coming king with his victory crown, to make this a meditation of your heart that you would think about what is coming. That's the whole purpose of the book of Revelation. It is to get you thinking about what God has planned and rejoicing about his everlasting care of you if if you are in Christ. These are promises that belong to his chosen people that he by grace alone has brought into his fold, into his covenant love. And what we want to do as his people in our church is we want to allow the anticipation of his final care give courage to us today. Because it is the same person who will harvest the world in the end who cares for you today. It is the same living Savior who, in a strange way, is present with us today, in this moment, in this place. He's not far away. By his Spirit, he even lives within within us, inside of us. He is here with us. This is what separates the Church of Jesus Christ from all other religions of the world, among many things, is that we have a living Savior who is with us. And he is always caring for us. He is always ministering his grace to us, even in this moment. I hope that you will be encouraged to know that Jesus is the one himself who will harvest the world in the end. But notice this next truth, which is the one that brings particular comfort to us. And it is that those with faith in Christ in this final harvest will be saved. 
We've seen already that Jesus has a sickle, but we'll also see here that he has helpers in the harvest. He has angels. Listen to verse 15. Another angel, we've been seeing some angels recently in Revelation, came out of the temple, the symbolic imagery in the vision of the temple. There's one calling out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe. First notice that these angels, these, these glorious beings that do his bidding and exist to glorify him every moment, always singing his praises. Even when you and I fail to, they continue. These angels are his co-laborers, just as you've read in other parts of the Bible about the wheat and the tares and the harvesting and separating of those who trust Christ and those who don't. We see again here that Jesus has these angels as his co-laborers. But make no mistake, he is not parallel with them, and he is not subordinate to them. He is the one who rules over to the harvest, over the harvest. That's why he, they are his helpers. But there is something interesting to see here, because it may sound in a moment like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth, because look at what it says in verse 15. The angel that came out of the temple called out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, that's the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, and says in a kind of command, put in your sickle and reap. Now that's an interesting thing because you wouldn't think about an angel commanding the Lord of glory to do something. So what exactly is going on here? Well, certainly Jesus is not subordinate to the angel. He doesn't take, take orders from the beings that live to worship and glorify and praise him for all of his excellencies. But what I think we see instead here is this angel coming out of the temple, the place of worship, announcing with the voice of God the Father what is to happen next. You remember as we read in other parts of the Bible that no one knows the hour. Not even the Son of Man, it says, but the Father gives the order. He is the one where it says, but about that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father does. So perhaps what we're seeing here is the Father's voice calling out by this angel of what's going to happen next when the Son of God, who is the harvester of the world, is to put in his sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come. Because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Jesus is the one here who will redeem his people. He is the one that will gather them together because they are ripe. It is time for him to gather his people to himself. When we read about this harvest, there are two different ways that the word ripe can be translated. And that's important to understand what's going on here in this text. One is that ripe can mean dry. It symbolizes wheat. So we're seeing this symbol throughout scripture that the wheat are those that God brings into his storehouse. And when they're dry, it is time for them to be harvested, as you would with that sickle. So this is an incredible picture of what happens in the final harvest, the final day of judgment. It is not only about justice and the end of sin. It is also about the security and the care of his people. As he gathers them together, he is their redeemer. He is their representative. He is the one who gathers them to himself at the end of time, those who know him. I have been 
enjoying running a little more lately, and I listen to podcasts when I run, and I don't usually buy the premium thing, you know, where it cuts out all the ads. So as I run around, I get the ads coming in as well. And there's one ad, this is going to sound very trivial, but uh, just on a run, it got me thinking about this truth that we're seeing in this text and what it means for Jesus to be our representative. Another one of those truths that's kind of easy to overlook, but it is certainly here, clear in this text and throughout the Bible and in the gospel. This is a particular ad for something called LifeLock. This LifeLock service is for people who are afraid of having their identity stolen, And LifeLock makes a promise that if you have your identity stolen or there's any funny business going on with any of your accounts or or any of your numbers, like your social security number, here's what they say in the end. A U.S.-based, dedicated restoration representative will be available for you. Now, as I was running along, I started thinking about why in the world would they say that? Why would they go to so much trouble to be so specific about where this representative is based? Well, it has to do with the comfort of knowing that that representative is on your turf. He is in your world. He speaks your language. He knows how to care for you. He is easy for you to access. That is a very small shadow of what it means for Jesus Christ to be our representative. And it is one small shadow that we should not let go. You see, because this tells us in this text that Jesus, when he comes for his people, recognizing that they are ripe for the harvest and he brings them together, he's bringing all of his plans to fruition. Think about what he has done for us. He didn't stay in heaven and redeem us from afar. He entered our world. He came onto our turf. He became one of us. He knows what it is to be tempted. He knows what it is to be in sorrow. He knows what it is to be afflicted. He knows what it is to be a sinner. Not because he himself is a sinner, but he came to take our sin on himself. Because he is based in our world. He has come for us. And this is the great joy of the coming harvest, knowing that he will gather you if you belong to him. We've had over and over again times when we've looked at the book of Revelation and we have been really fearful of what's going to come and we see dark and smoky pictures of of really hard things. And it has been a little, at times, off-putting for us. But this is the truth we try to keep bringing in again and again and again. If you are in Christ... He does and he will care for you. He will hold you. He will meet your needs. He will satisfy your heart. There is no one like him. Think about these people who are represented as the harvest of the world that he's bringing to himself, those who belong to him by faith. Think about who they are. Think about who you are. Think about what this means of how we have come to him. We did not come to him by our works. We came to him by grace. We did not come to him by our deeds and our sacrifices and our promises. We came to him by faith in his deeds and his sacrifices and his promises. And when we have come to him, he has offered us something that no one in the world can offer us. And that is pleasures forevermore. A true, satisfied heart, a heart that is made glad 
beyond all of the other things that you and I are so often chasing after to make us glad and happy in the world, when all the while it is Jesus Christ who makes us glad. In this end time, he will follow the direction of his Father, and at that hour, he will put in his sickle because the harvest of the earth is ripe. It says, then he sat on the cloud. Then it says, he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. This text is a call for anyone who doesn't know Jesus Christ to come by faith now, to come to the one who does satisfy, the one who does know you, the one who can enter your world, the one who can meet your need, and to throw yourself upon his mercy, because mercy you will find. Throw yourself upon his grace because grace you will find. In the end, in the great harvest of the world, those who have faith in Christ will be saved. So place your faith in Christ. But last, I want you to see something else. And this is where we see more difficult truth, hard texts to read. Hard texts to square with everything that we know about Jesus Christ. And that is that those without faith in Christ, at the end of the great harvest, which is harvested by the Lord himself, will be condemned. This is the truth that we often don't like to think about. It's the truth that we want to push to the side and and just remember the, the, the good stuff. Well, in a strange way, this also is the good stuff. This is God's expression of his just wrath and condemnation for sin to all of those who have been unwilling to bow to him and come to him and to be satisfied by him as we see that those without faith in Christ will be condemned. Notice this, there are more angels, more helpers coming in the harvest. Verse 17, another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven. And he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel who has the power over fire, you're getting the picture, it's coming into view, came out from the altar. There's two places there noted. The temple, the place of worship, and the altar, the place of sacrifice. And he calls with a loud voice to him who has the sharp sickle, saying, put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth because her grapes are ripe. This is the coming in of those believers. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. We have seen him gather together his people in the wheat, but now we are seeing gathering together, I think a second ago I said believers, gathering together those who are unbelievers represented as these grapes and they are thrown into the winepress of God's wrath. Earlier, we noticed that there was one use of the word ripe, which means dry, referencing the wheat, those who are ready to be harvested as those who belong to Jesus. But there is another translation of the word ripe, and here it is used in reference to grapes when they are overripe. It's the time for them to be harvested. The wheat of believers is gathered first in this harvest, but then there's no mistaking that those who are left they also, those grapes, will be gathered and they will be trodden down. It's that same picture that you've probably seen before 
of grapes being crushed in a press or, or the old way of making wine when grapes were, were put into a large vat and then they were crushed underfoot until all of the red juice that would make the wine is flowing out from the vat onto the ground or into containers, overflowing. That is part of what makes this scene difficult to understand. Because the Bible is not pulling any punches. It's giving us a symbolic picture, but it's very clear what that picture is. This is a picture of the shedding of blood. This is a picture of an ultimate final war with sin and sinners who will not come to him for grace that he has offered to the world. And they are trodden underfoot. Just as we say in the cliche that in good times the money was flowing like wine, the Bible here at this time is saying that the blood will flow like wine. We're seeing another picture of the character of Jesus Christ who will harvest the world. Yes, for those who know him, he is their redeemer. But for those who don't, He himself is their executioner. He is their condemner. He is the one who will crush them. This morning I read for us from Isaiah 63, that uh, public reading text in which we recounted the ancient mercies of old. It It was those later verses of 7 through 14 in Isaiah 63. But what we should do is go back up, and I'm going to read these for us, the verses that come right before that, because they tie into what we're seeing here in Revelation. We're seeing both of those, the mercy of God, but also the condemnation of his justice, and it is painting for us a a vibrant picture of what the end will be like. Listen to these words. Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Basra, This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, the one who speaks in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? He says, this is the coming redeemer, Jesus himself. In the coming day, I have trodden the wine trough alone. And from the peoples, there was no one with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. And their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments. And I stained all of my clothes for the day of vengeance was in my heart. And my year of redemption has come. I looked, but there was no one to help. And I was astonished and there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger and made them drunk with my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. That's what you should do when you hear that. Just be quiet. This is an incredible future reality for which in this moment we are praying 
and we are working to make the gospel known around the world. Because we know that Jesus is a mighty Savior. We know that he is full of grace and mercy. But also because we know that there is coming a day when grace will end and condemnation, final judgment will come. And it's that very reason why it will be so bad. Do you see how bad this is? Listen again to the picture. Furthermore, in these verses, how the vision is expressing to us what that will be like. The angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Now remember, the numbers here, they're not literal. They're giving a symbolic picture in the vision of what this end time will be like when judgment comes upon the world. 600 stadia, put that into our terms, is 184 miles. It could be that, 16, uh, that 1,600 stadia is used because it is the square of 40. It's 40 times 40. It's a way of, of showing an enormous place, uh, like the whole world. I'll put those two together. When judgment comes, it is as though the whole world will flood with the blood of God's enemies up to the bridles of the horses. This is yet another reason to trust Jesus Christ. It is another reason to come to him for grace now. It is another reason to share the gospel with as many people as you can because he has promised that he will do this. This is where the world is going. What is the world coming to? It's coming to this moment, a moment of final harvest of redemption to those who know Jesus Christ and are satisfied by his love and a final harvest of condemnation for those who have said, no, I will not be satisfied by your love. As we prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper, we have another helpful symbol provided for us, particularly in the fruit of the vine or the juice that we take as one of the elements of the Lord's Supper, symbolizing the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on the cross for the remission of sins, the forgiveness of God's people. Those who would come to him by faith can be washed in his blood. But here's the reality. No one goes through the great harvest without blood. Either you'll go through the great harvest as one who is redeemed because you have been bathed in the blood of Jesus Christ. His blood has been shed for you. It is sprinkled upon you. It is given to you. Or others without faith in Christ will go through the great harvest and they will be covered in blood of their own, blood of sin and treason and an unwillingness to bow before this great king. So every person has a very important choice to make. And the responsibility of his church 
is to make that clear. The Lord himself has made that clear in this text. Therefore, we call again. We call out to the world, come with us. Come with us and be sprinkled with the blood of a lamb to be spared your own so that you can know him by grace. You can be satisfied in your heart. You can be with him forever. Because anyone in their right mind does not want the alternative. We want to know Jesus in his grace, not in his wrath. If that's you this morning, I'm encouraging you to wait no longer. If you are even uncertain of where your final destiny will belong in these two ways of living, then make that sure today. Let today be the day of your conversion. Come to Christ. Throw yourself at his mercy because mercy you will find. Throw yourself at his grace because grace you will find. Hear the good news of the gospel and be saved. We carry this truth, we carry this hope as Christians into the celebration of this Lord's Supper, of communion. We are communing with God on the basis of what he has done for us. Therefore, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, Pastor Isaac will come and, and, and officiate this time with us. Let me encourage you to take this time seriously, to spend this time doing that very thing, communing with the Lord, talking with him, thanking him that his ministry of grace continues to serve you in this way as someone who knows him. And that as you take the Lord's Supper, that he would use it to encourage your heart and strengthen you and to lift you up with more faith and more trust in what he has done for you. And if you happen to be here and you are not in Christ, your faith is not in him, then this would be a time for you also to commune with God, but not take the Lord's Supper that you would take this instead later when you have come to him by faith and he belongs to you and you to him. And then his body really is the body that was broken for you. And his blood really is the blood that was shed for you. And then you rejoice with us. I want to pray for us as the deacons come forward to begin passing around the elements and Pastor Isaac comes to, to lead us in this time. Use this as an opportunity to reflect upon what you have heard. And if you are in Christ, to give thanks that you will be harvested by grace, by the Lord himself, and he will gather you with the rest of us, and we will be with him forever. Our Father, we do give you thanks today because your word is truth, and it is truthful. It is clear. And God, we pray that as we prepare our hearts now to celebrate this Lord's Supper, that it would be for us who are in Christ a true celebration. We have so many reasons to give you thanks, so many reasons to celebrate, and they are grounded in the good news of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. Help us to celebrate in our hearts today. Help us to take seriously also the commission that you have given to us to share the gospel with the world because you have fixed a day in which judgment will come We look forward to that day, Lord, because it is the day of our ultimate redemption, a day when we will go to be with you to a place of utter joy, without sin, without strife. And we do look forward to that day as well because it will be a day of victory for you. 
when you will stand over and above your enemies and that you will be glorified rightly. We pray for this day to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.